All right, everybody. This is Tyler Platt with the Grassroots Living Soil Podcast. I am super excited that we have Queen of the Sun grown. Did I say that wrong? Queen of the Sun. Yep, either or both, all. I got DBA, Queen of the Sun, Queen of the Sun grown. Queen. Yeah. What is it on Instagram? It's Queen of the Sun grown. Queen of the um, Sun grown. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so basically, there's this amazing po- uh, documentary called Queen of the Sun, and it's all about honeybees. So most of those tags are taken, but um, definitely check it out if you haven't seen it. It's amazing. Awesome. And that's where I got to get some introduction with you was on social media. Obviously, that's the the best place to get to know people and to know their whole lives (laughs) within 10 seconds. Um, Exactly. So uh, you hit me up asking to do some raised beds and to do this indoor series and I was like, you know what, this is, this is interesting. We, we get asked by a lot of people to sponsor their grows and, and to help them out. And a lot of times, you know, it's just like the same thing, like, Hey, what's up? I'm setting up this indoor bed and I'm going to do this. And and like, I'm going to figure it out. And I felt like you definitely had a full on action plan. Like you knew exactly what you were doing um and going after that so that's why we decided to to do this and work with you and then i i get a bonus out of it because i get to interview you for the podcast so that's that's super helpful um so if you want to take a second and you know give us uh i'm going to repeat it like three or four times because people always ask us to do this is say your social media say how we can get in contact with you beginning middle end don't worry about mentioning people always want to know as as much as possible um, but take us a second and just tell us about yourself and, and how you got to this passion that you have. Yeah, definitely. So like you said, Queen of the Sun Grown on Instagram, uh, YouTube, and Patreon. I'm working on a website right now to connect everything, but for now you can find me there. Um, basically, I got into the cannabis industry six years ago, working in uh, California medical. I had a grow, a licensed grow there. I was one of the first licensed grows in the rec market in California. Um, And my passion really started way before that though, like seventh grade, I started my very first garden. And I was just obsessed with how you can do things for yourself. Um, grow your own food, grow your own medicine, how we can be more self-sufficient human beings in this world where everything is handed to us. And also understanding that process of scientifically what's going on. Um, So I went to school for environmental science and I got a background in sustainable agriculture. And I just was super fascinated with soil science and chemistry and how molecules are just continually exchanging for more energy, this is what we're eating, you know, where we're, our plants are exchanging molecules with microbes, and then we're taking those plants and exchanging molecules, and it's just like this big, huge process. And so when I was about 18, I started smoking a lot of weed, <laughs> <laughs> and it changed my life. Um, I mean, I suffered from a lot of depression and anxiety as a teenager in this world of what is the point? What is human existence, the existential crisis? And cannabis kind of put it all into perspective for me. It made me feel connected to other people, to nature, to having a purpose. Um, And with my background and everything that I had driven me to this point, I was like, man, I want to learn how to grow weed. So five, six years later, 
um, I met by chance, a boyfriend was growing weed. And I was like, cool, can I learn? Um, and the rest is history. I mean, I dove into it head first and far surpassed his advanced nutrient <laughs> recipe. <laughs> no offense, advanced, but um, yeah. I basically just started looking into the relationship of soil science and microorganisms and how plants are making you know these nutrients and storing it in their flowers and influencing terpene production. And I trained through UC Davis as a master gardener oh. and that, yes. So I volunteered for two years doing that, teaching workshops and in Nevada County, it's like a very, very cannabis dominant um, place. So our master gardeners, even though we're technically not allowed to talk about cannabis, um, we had a lot of people that I got to help through that and learn from. I mean, old growers that were like 70 years old who've been growing weed there since the 60s. So really, really cool experience. Um, yeah, and I started playing with just planting in the ground. And that was definitely influenced from Master Gardeners, UC Davis, and uh, the breeder, Purple Caper. He was kind of my mentor. And he was just like, dude, people are wasting money buying fertilizers. Minerals are in the ground. Yep. Um, and we lived in such a um, unique, amazing place where you can grow outdoor, a beautiful, amazing outdoor, and do it for pennies on the dollar compared to the indoor systems that I was learning on. So now, you know, fast forward five years, I actually just moved up to Washington State, and it is much colder and I am not growing commercially this year is my first year that I'm not growing commercially. Um, and I've just kind of changed my focus to helping home growers because the beginning of this passion was being self-sufficient, doing something myself. And why not teach home growers how to do it instead of growing weed for them? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so that's where, you know, moving to Washington, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to have to grow indoor because it's still raining. It's still freezing cold outside right now. Um, and that's where I reached out to you. I was like, okay, I'm going to start doing this. And I'm not going back to little plastic pots. <laughs> I'm oh, going God. to replicate a living soil bed and have a lot more volume because they're with volume, you're going to get more diversity of organisms. I can fit more plants in there. Um, just everything about the beds is, I'm really, really excited to try out. Beautiful, beautiful. And tell us a little bit about that, that situation that you're going to set up. Are you going to dedicate uh, a whole room to this? I know you said it's going to be a couple of tents. What are your plans? Yeah. So I've got two tents that I'm doing in my garage, a four by eight and a four by four. And then I'm also going to do a four by eight and a four by four bed outside. And I'm actually doing it side by side with you and with smart pots raised beds. Oh, good. Oh. Okay. Well, we always win in, in that competition. So I'm not even worried <laughs> about that one. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I'm excited to see how it plays out. Um, basically just going to be using um, the traditional Cornell recipe, you know, like one third or aeration, one third compost, um, 
and we're going i'm sorry and one third cocoa coir mixed with peat moss because like your previous guest scott um peat moss is not the most sustainable product out there although certain companies tout being more sustainable than others specifically canadian peat moss um but it's super hydrophobic if you let it dry out um and cocoa car is a byproduct of an industry that is already going to be used, you know? It's like, well, why not use the waste of something that would otherwise be, I don't know what they would do with it if gardeners didn't use it, but at least we're using it. So, and then just mixing my own dry amendments. I have my own recipes that I've played with and developed. Um, you know, I had two 20 by 100 foot greenhouses in California and probably a couple hundred outdoor plants. Um, so I'm just, you know, I've perfected my recipe according to soil testing and then just applying things. So I'm gonna kind of just start out with the basics and then get my soil tested and see where I stand. Um, the thing with living soil and organics, it's a lot more forgiving. Um, if you take things in moderation, you're not going to lock out nutrients like you would in a synthetic system. Um, yeah, and just keep those microorganisms happy, fed, create an ecosystem that they will love, and in turn, my plants will. Yeah, that's probably going to be a, a good amount of relief and like enjoyment for you going from what you did before with that massive amount of greenhouses and outdoor plants down to this um which could bring its own challenges too because sometimes it's easier to mix you know compost teas and nutrients for those large situations on that large scale it's, it's just as easy and sometimes like i've noticed uh mixing up a one gallon bucket of some microbes and this and that and looking at the ph and ec and like what it does and sometimes it's it's, it's very difficult on a small scale scale too um so do you have any plans about uh how you're going to pair that stuff down to that scale? Is that working down like to the yard of soil or, or what, are you, what are you thinking there? I actually create a lot of recipes for home growers on my Patreon. So everything that I've done, I've already scaled down um, theoretically for people to use. So it'll be um, the first time that I get the opportunity to actually make it in such small quantities, but I'm not, I'm not nervous about that. Um, in fact, I really love experimenting and like I tried doing sprouted seed tea for my big grow oh my gosh can you imagine trying sprout <laughs> you got like six trays of like corn going on here the, the local grocery stores out of popcorn people are freaking out oh yeah but yeah, it was intense I had like a full tarp in my yard covered with barley sprouted barley it was I was like, this is ridiculous. I'm not doing this. I'm just buying bags of malted grain from here on out. Like the enzymes may not be as high of levels, but they're still there. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's one of the things that I think got me like four or five years ago. I was super excited about uh, seeded sprout tea, uh, seeded, uh, seed sprout teas. And then I just saw people like just go so crazy with it. Like, you know, this guy's all of a sudden his Instagram is, is seed sprout Joe and he does a seed sprout tea every single day. And I'm just like, okay, like 
get some diversity going on there, man. I don't think that's going to help you too much during flower too. It's probably going to elongate some things and make some things <laughs> larfy. I'd imagine. I don't know. I haven't done it, but as I, I think, think people like they uh, just get too crazy with one thing and they can't forget that like this is all about diversity. Yeah, you know, well, it's, a, it's a holistic, you know, you need to look at it a holistic approach, you're managing an ecosystem, essentially, and everything has their role. And so not focusing, we get so like reductionist, where we're like, okay, this is what we're going to focus on. This is what we're going to be really good at. And when you think of it as like, no, I'm kind of just a steward. And I'm not going to try and manipulate anything too strongly. I'm just going to try to ensure that there's a healthy space that will allow things to thrive. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that's one important factor of like the difference in between a new grower and somebody who's like, like, like you, like, or like me, like I'm super comfortable with large soil masses, the larger the soil mass, the better, because I know the forgiveness of it. And I just think some people are like, man, like I'm the one that's going to push this thing forward and make it successful. And our job is to screw it up as little as possible, you know, and try to stay out of the way. Uh, which brings me into my next question is, is what are your plans for these indoor beds and even outdoor uh, for irrigation? Are you going to do hand watering? Do you have some sort of a system that you're going to set up? Yeah, so I'll probably just start out hand watering. Um, and then I'd like to just do gravity fed blue mats. Cool, cool. And I obviously, love blue mats. Those are great. awesome. Did you use them on a commercial scale or just a uh, small? No, just small. I've only used them... Um, like for house plants, like six years ago, just like their vacation one that they have. And I was oh, like, yeah. oh, this is super cool, but I can't do this on the, this large of a scale. So for my past, I just would put drip tape, super cheap, affordable, you know, you can put a fertigation line right in there and pump things in if you need to. But for this application where it's just two raised beds, I'll be doing the blue mats for inside and then outside I'll probably just hand water because I love hand watering. If you can, it's such a great time to check out your plants and see what's going on and, you know, just give them some good vibes and check out for cool insects, look at the leaves, watch the growth, notice anything. Um, I, I suggest everyone should hand water at least, you know, once a week. Yeah, definitely get that relationship with the plants. I know I, I personally wake up and rise out of bed at least 30, 45 minutes early just to go check on all those beautiful plants I bought at Home Depot and Lowe's in my backyard <laughs> and that I'm trying to turn into some beautiful, beautiful tropical forest around all my fountains that I have going on because I'm a Pisces and I just can't, can't have enough water around me. So, so um, <laughs> yeah, have to have, have to have that. Um, but going into my, my next series of questions, and I'm hoping that you can kind of run through this as kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm just running down my checklist here of how I'm going to do this. Um, once you, let's say we've got the beds and the soil set up and um, you're like, okay, everything's there. Um, and let's say you've done your initial watering, you know, like, Hey, everything's good. I feel like this water, the soil saturated. It hasn't gone hydrophobic. I was able to, to mix it, put it into there and everything went good. Cause I know sometimes that process doesn't go as you, as you want, but what's going to be your process once we have that soil in the beds, in the tents. And I'd imagine you're going to go through a process of, 
amending and inoculating and and just kind of bring it bring us down break it down how you're going to manage that soil for let's say the first three months yeah so basically um i am just going to amend with my dry fertilizers i will water in my microbes which i have a company that i usually buy um very, very concentrated amounts for a very cheap price. Um, Custom Biologicals out of Florida, they are a conventional agriculture, like large scale. So a tiny like 50 milliliter bottle um, is good for 2.5 hectares and it's like $27. So I'm all about trying to be as cheap as possible, like a supportable, you don't need to pay for all that water um, in a big bottle and you don't need to buy cannabis specific. Um, no, you don't. Yeah. So I will inoculate, um, you know, give them, I definitely like to put some malted grains in the soil as well. Some of those, they, the fungus just loves that. Um, inoculate and then let it sit for two weeks before I plant. Um, I like the amendments to be in there for a while and kept watering and give the life a chance to break things down. Um, and then I will transplant and then I'll just be hand watering um, as needed. I do have a soil moisture meter, so I like to use that. And then also just your finger up to the second joint, you know, knuckle. Um, just put your finger in the soil and feel it. See what it feels like. It should be like a wrung out sponge, in my opinion not too saturated, uh, not too dry, Goldilocks. Um, <laughs> and then uh, once a week I do a uh, sprouted seed tea, enzyme teas. And then that's, you know, we'll go through and just see how the plants are doing. I mean, it all depends on pests. If there are any, hopefully it's so cold here that I won't have a lot of issues with pests like I did in California. Um, but usually I would do a full year once a week of sulfur back home. So I'm not sure I might do, I'll probably still do that just because there's a lot of mold issues in Washington. Um, everything hates sulfur, literally russet mites, mold, rattlesnakes, you can name it, hate it. So I'll do that once a week. Um, might mix in some aloe for those, uh, you know, hormones and, um, yucca is a surfactant. Um, kelp is debatable. I used to be like a big fan of kelp and fulvic acid, but people are like, oh, the heavy metals in kelp. So I'm like, oh, well, maybe I'll just leave it in the soil instead of a foliar application. Then there's less of a risk of contamination of heavy metals on the plant. Um, but I'm super excited about uh, trying to create my own fulvic acid um, water soluble spray. So I've been reading a lot of different white papers on how people do this on a commercial scale. So think like um, full power. Um, basically, you know, uh, it's weird because the United States, I think it's just the US, they don't differentiate fulvic acid from humic acid in fertilizer labeling. Mm -hmm. necessarily, but fulvic acid is a much smaller molecule size. So it's better for foliar application because it can actually penetrate the stomata, whereas a humic acid is much larger. Um, and this is because it's a newer humate versus a fulvic is an older humate, um, like langbanite, 
which is really old. Um, humate is what you can get um, fulvic acid extracted from, as well as peat moss, because that's like ancient plant material. So the older the material, um, the smaller the molecule size, because it's had a longer time to break down. Um, so I've got langbanite and peat moss, and I will be soaking that um, in vinegar and do an acid base wash and switch between the two over like the period of like four weeks. And essentially that will extract a lot of the fulvic acids and suspend it in that solution. And then I'll just test that out and see what it does. <laughs> um, but it should work. You know, yeah. that's how they do it in the big scale labs um, and make these full year, um, you know, like full power kind of things for full year fulvic acids. And it's like so much cheaper. I don't know if you've ever bought fulvic acid. Very expensive. You buy a little like 12 ounce little bottle and it was like 40 or $50. And I'd, I'd always use a lot less on the label because I'd try to push it a lot further, you know, and I've heard so much great stuff about fulvic and it's especially the, obviously the bioag full power uh, line is what you're mostly going to find uh, and getting that, uh, that fulvic and not just the humic, obviously, especially in building a foliar spray. It's probably very, very important item to have in there, obviously. So. Yeah, so I will let everybody know, but it's going to be on my Patreon this month, um, the recipe and just the step by step and I'm all about experimenting and then just letting people know how it goes and I love my patrons experimenting alongside me and, you know, I always say just test it out on one part of the plant first, <laughs> don't spray your whole garden. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So that's, you know, foliar sprays and tending my plants and just experimenting and seeing how it goes. Um, obviously, pruning and trellising and all the usual things will happen in the garden, but at a much smaller scale. So I'm really excited to get to baby my plants a little bit more and um, play with different trellising when I did indoor, when I learned how to grow, it was indoor and we used a lot of um, like those yo-yo things. Oh, um, and retractors. Yeah. Uh-huh, exactly. So I actually had like recorded a 3% increase in yield um, from using that. I used it on one row of the garden and one row didn't have it. And it did increase the yield because you know, the sugars were able to store more in the flowers rather than using that energy to hold themselves up in the stem. Yep. So um, I'll probably just continue experimenting with things like that, just any which way I can, since it's going to be such a small space, I get the opportunity to do that. Do you know how many plants you're going to do per four by four square? I guess that's kind of how I like to scale it down. Well, legally. <laughs> 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 I'm allowed 15 plants um, medically here in Washington. So um, I'll uh, keep it around 15. <laughs> cool, cool. Yeah, obviously, uh, I look at those as suggestions. Right. <laughs> Especially in the world that we live in now today, I don't think there's anybody that's going to come busting down any doors for something like that. And, you know, it's not something you should worry about. And if it's a clone, technically it's the same plant, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you see yourself mainly doing uh, clones or are you going to do, uh, do your own seeds, germination, and take clones from there? 
Um, this year I'm doing clones only just because we're still setting up the gardens. I haven't even set up the beds yet. I just got the tent set up. Um, lights are actually getting set up right now. My husband is also a cultivator, so it works awesome. We're like a team. He gets to do all the things I don't want to. <laughs> oh, he gets to do all the fun building. All the, the I can totally see like, you know, helping out with that kind of stuff and then just letting you do your thing with the soil. Yep. Yep. So um, we're just going to do clones this year. I do love seed plants. I usually always do seed plants for outside. They just adapt to the environment that they're born into. Um, it's amazing how you can start a seed plant outside and it will um, become resistant to pathogens or to abiotic factors that are not necessarily present in a clone mother plant. Um, so she doesn't have that built in her when she you take that clone in an environment that is, you know, one certain way that clone may adapt a little bit to what environment you put it into but for outdoors seed plants are far superior in my opinion yeah and I think um people do such a crazy job sanitizing everything and cleaning everything I feel like sometimes in that cloning process they clean and sanitize things so much that you wipe out your native microbes that were helping you out or defending against things so it's like you wipe the slate clean allowing for you know things to come in and 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 make those plants susceptible when they had their natural defenses before that they could have resisted this stuff to completely so yeah it's just like you know a cesarean section versus a vaginal delivery for a child. You get your microbiome when you're born. And then when you're cesarean section, it removes all of that chance to have the bacteria that you would otherwise have covered you when you were born. Isn't that crazy? I didn't know that. Yeah. Same thing with breastfeeding. People who don't breastfeed, um, you know, for whatever reason, there are bacteria and things present in breast milk that inoculate a baby to um, have a better immunity to the world. I have heard that. I didn't hear about the the giving birth naturally compared to a C-section. That makes makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's pretty cool. We're such we're the society, especially with you know COVID and everyone being like antibacterial and this and that. But it's like, dude, bacteria kill viruses like and yet we're killing all of the bacteria yeah yeah and there was never any like you know you should be going to the gym and getting healthy and not being fat because the fat people are the <laughs> ones that are like dying from this and having a horrible time and it's like that's how I came out of this whole thing is I just need to be healthier and you know rounding out to 33 years old you can get kind of round as a man so I'm trying to be, you know, thin and lean and helpful to myself and everything like that. So that's what everybody should be doing is being healthier and healthier yeah. life, healthier plants. Um, exactly. so are you going to grow any, I know obviously probably the outdoor beds is probably going to be the food growing zone. Uh, do you in, intend on growing any other plants uh, indoors or are you going to keep it strictly just cannabis? Uh, what are your plans? So I haven't quite decided yet if I'm going to do any kind of companion planting. I typically love having a mixture of diversity in there. I believe that um, different plants will have uh, or attract different microorganisms. It'll give more root exudates out into the soil to promote a healthier thriving microbiome. Um, so my husband is like anti companion plant inside though. <laughs> um, 
but I may be able to fit in some like creeping thyme, some things that are low growing that aren't going to compete with the root zone um, that are also pest resistant. Um, the thing is that I often throw things in there from my agriculture background where I'm like, oh, you know, these nasturtiums attract parasitic wasps. So let's put them in there. Oh, but they also attract imported cabbage moths, which lay worms and then cause bud rot. So oh. <laughs> big surprise. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'll probably just stick to some low growing things that are known pest deterrents, um, but no food, maybe potatoes. I do like to throw some potatoes into the beds and they don't really compete too much. Um, for space, especially on the outside perimeter. So we'll see. It'll just be kind of a, a improvisation as I go. Great, great. What is, um, what's a tool? And I don't even care if this is a hair clip or a foliar spray can, whatever it is. What is a tool that you cannot grow without? A tool that I cannot grow without? Hmm myself. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I, I don't know, pitchfork for turning compost outside because the compost is the most important thing for my plants, I'd say. <laughs> okay, so that's oh. the go-to tool. That's yeah. good. I've had, we've had some interesting answers to that, uh, whether that be uh, the book that they're most in love with at the time, or coffee, or uh, pH meters, you know, or bricks meters, you know, you know, really weird answers to that question. So that's, that's great to hear. And I, uh, I love that it's the compost that's the most important because you know, that's really what's going to, you know, give your biology a chance to kick off in that soil. Oh, yeah. uh, so can we talk about your compost uh, yeah. and what you're doing with that right now? What's your, what do you got going on? Right now I have a secured worm bin that I built, me and my husband built a custom worm hotel. So um, it's got kind of, it's got like a lid that lifts up so that we can throw everything in there. Um, and then it has a drawer underneath it with a hardware mesh on top and then a window screen underneath so that the uh, leachate or runoff can leave the drawer, but the castings will still be held within. Um, so it's experimental. Usually I use just an old tote that I drill holes into. And my husband's like, we're not going to be those people with totes sitting in our backyard. We live in a neighborhood now, not a grove. <laughs> so it needs to look nice. So we have a nice looking worm bin. Um, and Property values are important to your husband. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> Oh, we already got a call. Um, you guys' lawn needs to be mowed. I'm like, haven't you heard of no mow May? It's the pollinators, man. I'm not mowing my lawn until June 1st. <laughs> uh, yeah, so just right, right now, we just have the worm bin because we have a raccoon problem. So um, we have raccoons that come like every night looking for the dog food. So I haven't actually started a thermophilic um, compost bin because they could just get into that. That's like 
why I suggest people start with worm bins if you're in a suburban or urban area where you're going to have pests like that around. Um, also keeping meat, dairies, fats, bones, things like that out of your compost will reduce your chance of having those kinds of pests in your bin. Um, but usually I like to do um, like a three compartment thermophilic and I have different stages. I'll have one bin um, and you just build this with pallets, whatever. I'm all about upcycling. Don't spend yeah. money on it. Um, the three foot rule is best three feet wide, three feet tall to ensure that you have enough biomass to get the heat up high enough. If you don't have that height, um, your temperature typically won't reach 150 degrees and you really want your temperature to get up to 150 degrees if you have any reason to suspect that the input material may be contaminated with weed seeds or um, any diseases or pathogens or anything like that. So if you had like botrytis or powder mold, which is everywhere, um, and you wanted to still compost it, just make sure that you get your compost pile above 150 degrees and those pathogens should be annihilated. Um, same thing with like seeds and manure, like horse manure oftentimes has a lot of grass seeds in it. So you just want to get it up above that. Is there, what's the period of time that you want it to stay at that temperature? Is it like also, cause I don't know anything about this. Is it like, if it hits that temperature, it's like automatically going to maintain that for the amount of time that you need, or do you have to like keep adding water and making sure that it like stays at that temperature or is like the goal just to get it to that temperature and then you're at cruise control yeah you really just want to get it to that temperature you're always wanting your pile to be moist though just the same moisture as your soil like a wrung out sponge is ideal um and turning it at least once a week to get air because you don't want it to go anaerobic that there's you know, different bacteria are associated with the lack of oxygen than the ones that are um, aerobic. And that's, you'll tell, you'll know if your pile is anaerobic by the smell, you don't want it to stink. Um, just keep on turning it, watering it. And really only a few days of being at that temperature is necessary, like one or two days. Basically you're just hitting it. And then by the next week, it'll be down in the eighties, seventies, um, it'll lower. So you just got to get it up there. And then once it's down at a cool level, that's when you could start, I'd say room temperature or, you know, uh, you, that's when you can start incorporating it into your soil. Yeah. I mean, I've added warm ish compost into my beds where it's still steaming. You can see it. Um, so it's warmer than the air outside. Um, but again, I would wait a week or two to add plants but let the compost kind of just mix in with your soil and it'll cool just as you spread it out. Beautiful, beautiful. Um, and then outside, are you gonna be doing a bunch of veggies too? Or what are you, what's your plan with your outside uh, beds? I'm gonna be doing just my typical companion plants. Um, buckwheat is one of them, sweet alyssum. So buckwheat brings in the parasitic wasps and ladybugs. Sweet alyssum brings in like lace wings, by the droves um, and then whatever else, maybe some dill and cilantro. Those are great for miticides, um, mites hate those. And 
I love daikon radish, but I probably won't do that in a bed. I usually do that um, in the ground directly and it helps with water infiltration and movement. Um, so yeah, whatever, I have like a giant bin of seeds and I'll probably just look and see what looks nice that day. What do I, <laughs> uh, don't have a ton of rhyme or reason. The lemon balm is actually really good for deterring those little moths I was talking, or butterflies I was talking about, the imported cabbage moth, sorry. Um, so lemon balm deters those. If you have any, um, worry of getting uh, budworms, plant lemon balm does a really good job of keeping um, those away. So yeah, I'll be planting, you know, some random things, but not a ton of vegetables this year. I usually have a huge veggie garden um, and I don't have a lot of space where I'm at for keeping vegetables away from my dogs. And um, you don't want to eat something that's been peed or pooped on by your dog. <laughs> uh, yeah. So unfortunately this year, it'll probably just be whatever I can fit in the beds that you send me. That'll be the only thing that we're growing because my animals have access to the whole yard. Um, and I'm traveling a lot this summer. So that is leaving the responsibility of making sure that everything is watered to my husband and he prefers to focus on cannabis only. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you got other plants. So he's like, what? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I will be traveling once a month all over the country teaching soil biology classes. So I'm actually leaving on Wednesday to head to Tulsa and Oklahoma City. It'll be the first classes. Um, and then I'm going to Illinois, Chicago, and Rockford the month after that. And then Tampa, Florida in August. And, you know, you can find me teaching people about microbes. We're going to bring out, I've got a microscope actually like sitting right next to me. So we will check out your soil. I'm asking everyone to bring their own sample. Um, we'll look at it under the microscope. We have about an hour set aside for looking at everyone's soil. Um, also really pushing native soil and growing in the ground if you can. Yeah. Um, so we're gonna talk about soil biology in the sense of the soil's life cycle. How do you determine if your soil is um, compatible for growing plants, the tilth of it, as it's called in soil science? Um, looking at the structure, the porosity, your aggregates, what color it is, how it feels in your hand. There's simple tests that you can do at home with a jar and some detergent to determine your, you know, like your clay, silt, or sand content. Um, and so it's really just going to be exploring everything about soil and how to boost it to maintain a healthy, optimal um, life for your plants and microbes. So I'm really excited for that. And they should all be checking out your social media for how to get to these classes and find out more about them, right? Yes, yes. Can read the best um, my social media and then growcastpodcast.com slash classes. Um, they'll be posted all on there. I don't know how you feel about other podcasts, but I do. Of course, yeah. It's okay, on. yeah, cool. I'm on uh, Growcast a lot. Growcast team member, so I'm partnering with him, and he's going to be traveling with me, um, doing these classes. So, 
we're really excited, you know, just spreading knowledge, getting people educated. Cool, cool. I'm glad we talked about that for a minute. And other podcasts and other sources of education, I think, are very important because just like feeding your soil, you should be feeding your brain with with every source imaginable. I mean, Joe Rogan to you know whatever books you can and and everything like that. So I'm definitely a uh, should be learning it in any way possible. Um, getting back to the soil, um, what is your your permanent goal like when you look at this setup indoor um because i look at how you manage soil indoors and using it consecutively compared to a situation outdoors where you're forced to take three four months away from growing and that soil gets a chance to rest um so what is your goal for the five-year, 10-year outlook for these soil masses? Do you have a limit to its life? Uh, what do you What do you feel its capabilities are going to be? Well, I will only be in the house that I'm living in for a few years. My goal is to be, we're just renting, so I doubt I will be taking the soil with me. Um, it'll probably go into the garden outside. So that's okay. going to be its end life cycle. It's just going to go back to the ecosystem and feed the trees and plants that are out there. Um, but until then, I will be using it and managing it and testing it. I think that having the data in front of you is really the only way that you can determine what path to go forward. And I'm super strong, like, opinion about getting your soil tested, especially indoors. Um, nitrogen and phosphorus are like one of the most widely overused fertilizers. Um, they're mobile, they just wash out. And so knowing what your levels are for everything though is really important when you're adding things back in. Um, so, you know, I'll just keep it going, keep adding compost each cycle. That's usually my go-to is like, okay, I'm gonna, grow like I got three cycles in in California in my greenhouses so we were growing from like March until December so it really only had two months off and in between each cycle I would just add a nice heavy layer of compost also chop and drop whatever um else is growing in there um and then straw I add straw into all of my uh grows and I'll still use I'll do that inside Rice straw is what I used in California. I'm not sure what the um, local source of straw or hay is, probably alfalfa, which is higher in nitrogen. So you just got to be careful about that. Um, and then the testing and see what I need to add back in. But really carbon, which we don't talk about very often as gardeners, that is like, you know, we're all carbon-based life. Um, and adding carbon back into the soil is really what's going to keep the cycles, everything else going. Um, so adding that in the form of compost, in the form of straw, um, and then the microbes are going to break that down and feed on it. And then enzymes with the sprouted seed tea, those are actually uh, catalysts of breaking down carbohydrates, uh, also known as carbon. And so that'll just keep my soil, you know, going until I move. We'll see. <laughs> It'll be a huge blessing to the next person that rents that house. Yeah. <laughs> they won't even know. You know? Um, let's talk about your soil testing that you do. Can you bring me through 
um, collecting a sample all the way to sending it out to the laboratory and what laboratory you use? And um, yeah, I actually just got in contact with a new soil testing lab because I, you know, I'm trying to find somebody local. I'm always about lo supporting local as much as possible. And so previously in California, I would send to Peaceful Valley. Um, oh, yeah. They are like my favorite store and the biggest like sadness I have left behind in California is missing Peaceful Valley. Um, I used to teach classes at their, their store and they're just amazing. If you have an opportunity in Grass Valley to go in there, um, it's just a beautiful store. And they have an agronomist. I took a class with her and she walked us, she's the one who taught me how to go through a soil test. And so any questions you have, if you get your soil tested through them, they have an agronomist who will go over the results with you. Um, which is super helpful because a lot of these other labs, you just send in your um, soil sample and then they just send you back the sheet and you're like, okay, how do I read this and figure this out? You have to translate the matrix. It's not yeah. easy. Um, so, you know, making sure that your tools are clean, um, that you're not touching with your hands, going down about six inches, um, collecting samples from like, for our beds, you know, like a four by eight or a four by four, I'll probably pull from like uh, four spots, you know, each corner kind of thing, or maybe like one in the middle and three corners, something like that. You want to get a representation of different areas because aggregates are going to hold different nutrients. Um, and so just getting a little bit from everywhere is ideal for this soil test. Um, and like I said, six inches deep using clean tools and putting it directly into the package um, or the paper container that you're going to be shipping to the lab. And then um, I'm talking to somebody in Moses Lake. I'm not sure what the name of this lab is, but he basically said, you know, come on in whenever. And uh, I'm looking at getting a sponsorship with the soil test lab so that I can just keep doing it and show the results and kind of just push people to that lab. So we'll see what comes of that. Um, but yeah, just, you know, then you get your results and you look at it and you're like, okay, I really like the soil test results that tell you in layman terms, like optimal, <laughs> not present, like easy. I mean, yeah, I can figure it out and look, but it's just nice to have it broken down each nutrient and tell you, okay, yes or no, I need to add this. Um, and then I'm also a big fan of, um, for home growers, just buying a simple NPK test that you can do yourself. You know what I'm talking about? The little pill oh. that you just break apart and you put it in there. Um, that's great for baseline, just great baseline NPK. Um, especially if you already have a soil test done um, on your medium that shows you all of your uh, micronutrients and kind of just going from cycle to cycle um, using the at-home kit can be a little bit more affordable and I don't think it's necessary for you to always have your soil tested between each runs if you were optimal and you know like your system you're adding compost and you've had your compost tested you know something like that it's just like think about it holistically and be smart don't just throw your money away because you think you need to have a soil test every single time think about like okay um, well, I added my compost and I know that my compost has these trace minerals and this NPK, but um, 
maybe I want to, you know, just get a baseline and use the home test. That's my recommendation. Yeah. So you're probably your biggest wild card factor that you're dealing with now is probably your, your water since you're uh, in a city now, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. I know. I'm nervous about that. I'm going, so I've heard this little tip that you can take your water to like a pool company. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they'll testing. For free. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you're <laughs> like, Oh, Hey, here you go. Help me with my pool. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not above bending the truth or omitting the details to get something. Um, so that's the plan is to just take it in because I do not like RO. I don't like, you know, taking everything out. Um, I'm just really hoping that I don't have a ton of chlorine or fluoride, which is chlorine. typical um, in, yeah, you're, this is the first time I haven't lived on a well in like 10 years. So it's going to be interesting to see. Um, but the great thing about humics, humic acid, I was, and I was just going to say, I was just going to say, you're venturing down this pathway. I'm sure you're planning on battling uh, your chlorine and chloramine and fluoride with humic and tying that up, right? Yep, exactly. So that's the amazing thing about chemistry. And I just think that if anyone wanted to explore a subject more outside of like agriculture and soil science, it's just chemistry and seeing how like literally everything is atoms right and then you have these electrons that have that are spinning around and they're wanting to grab onto other atoms that have protons and so with the humic acid you have like this long chain of carbohydrates all attached together and they kind of have like what I would think of like cups attached to them at all different areas and they're like just waiting to be filled up by a negative electron and so you think of chlorine, um, fluoride, and things like that that are negatively charged anions, they're just waiting to go into that cup that the humic acid chain has. So if you treat your water before adding anything else with a uh, humic, then you'll bind those things that your plant doesn't need. And then it also binds things that your plant does need, but the plant has an opportunity to look at it and be like, okay, no, this is what I want. Yeah, here, okay, yeah, give cool. me that cup. Exactly. Yeah. So if you are in city water, also you could just let your um, your water sit for like 24 hours too. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've heard a lot about that process and, and learned about it. I've just never had to do it. I guess, I mean, like, I don't know, my water at my house is like, it's really perfect. It comes out like, you know, I'm in a city, it comes out at like 6.3 and is at the most like two, 300 PPMs. Uh, so it's not bad. It's really easy to manage. And it seems like the plants just in general, like they like it, especially, you know, every time I water them, I'm usually adding in some sort of microbes and humic and fulvic acids and seaweed and fish hydrolysate and rock dust and all kinds of beautiful stuff that's uh, in our other products that we have. Um, but yeah, that is a great way of, of dealing with that and getting onto the chemistry side of things is a skill that you have to create as being a cannabis grower, along with learning how to do electrician and air and air conditioning and <laughs> all the, the different other things that you have to be an expert in. Yeah. It's definitely wild. That's why it's nice to be a team. You know, if you're in a couple, a relationship, you have somebody who has like, my husband's the HVAC guy. <laughs> <laughs> but like, yeah, pull in the exhaust and the, um, oh, speaking of, my, sorry, I went on a tangent here in my mind. 
mushrooms. We're gonna be trying to grow some mushrooms as well. And then, um, so mushrooms are super interesting because they off-gas CO2. And oh, so yeah. putting that into our cannabis grow, um, into the tents there and see how high we can get our CO2 levels without uh, you know, doing any CO2 enrichment. Because, I mean, we talk about how parts per million of CO2 is like really bad for you know, greenhouse gas emissions or whatever, but uh, 900 ppm is like what the planet used to be at for carbon dioxide and the plants were like huge and everything was growing and it was like this lush amazing rainforest and so I mean studies have been done by Stanford and Yale and like everywhere on uh, CO2 enrichment and how they increase plant production fruits all this stuff I mean there's a reason why cannabis growers are buying CO2 tanks and doing putting all this work into CO2 enrichment. So fungus, the fungus among us produces CO2. And that's just an amazing thing to add into your grow. And then you get to harvest like shiitake and lion's mane and turkey tail and all of these things that are so good for us and probably started life on earth as we know it. Yeah, they definitely, I, I feel like they have, uh, shaped this planet, helped shape this planet. And I feel like um, it's kind of like when you go to a property that has been abandoned for like 10 years and you see the plants are just taking everything over and the, the earth is just sucking that property back into the ground. I just like, yeah, finally, man. It's like, I wish if we would get the hell out of the way, it would happen a lot faster. And like, what would this planet look like if we all disappeared for, you know, 20, 30 years, you'd come back and it would just be the most rich, beautiful landscape you've ever seen um so that's just my opinion of it um i agree but yeah i even saw how you can have your body composted now in the state of washington i think is where i saw that and i was like i, I immediately reposted on social media i was like i'm going down this way like this oh, is yeah. I'll, I'll pay for this ahead of time you know um, this is i had an acquaintance in nevada county from where i moved amigo bob um, he was just composted by the company. They shipped his body from California up to Seattle and they composted him and send him back down to his wife so he can go on feeding the plants. He was like a huge pillar of the cannabis community down there. So it's really, really cool to be, to see that, you know, he's going to be composted and living on forever. And I kind of, I mean, not to be religious or whatever, but that's kind of my train of thought where, you know, we're all energy and life continues, but in what way? Maybe as compost. Yeah. Oh yeah. Many different ways and many different possibilities too. If anything, I want to come back like a bird. They've got great lives. Yeah, me too. I've always wanted to fly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Just as a bird for sure. Um, so is there anything you've been planning or wanting to talk about in this podcast that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet? Um, I don't think so. I mean, there's so many things we could talk about, but I think that we've kind of covered what I'm about, what I'm doing, growing, you know, as sustainably, ethically as possible. Um, for me, my husband, um, I, we love making bubble hash, but that's like a whole nother episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's what I'm doing every weekend is 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 making hash and waiting for the freeze dryer to get done and doing the pressing and all that kind of stuff. And we've never, never talked about that kind of stuff on the podcast. We've always kept it cultivation related and everything like that. But I've got to say this last weekend, I produced some of the whitest, beautiful hash that I've ever done in my life. And I am so excited that it is in a jar curing 
Um, and I've got three different large jars and I'm going to take them through a different curing process for all three of those uh, just cool. to see. And um, I've done a lot of hash making, hash uh, producing, rosin pressing, but I haven't done a lot of aftercare or like jar tech or like making it look super sexy afterwards, like that kind of thing. I'm just like, okay, that jar needs to be smoked. And, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, like let's start sharing. Um, so um, yeah, that's always uh, a very interesting process that needs light because you should be processing your own stuff and you should be doing it all yourself. And then you should be taking that leftover material um, and incorporating it back into your compost system. And I love drinking the water that comes off of your ice water hash. Have you ever done wow. that? No, I haven't. That's interesting. Oh, my God. It tastes so amazing. Like it is so refreshing that the taste like fades away after like two or three days. So there's no point in like keeping it or anything like that. But um, next time you do a run, and you're about to dump out all that water, just take a little sip of it. And it's amazing how like, it's like an exact representation of the flour and the hash you're going to make and everything like that. Um, it's, it's definitely, I feel like a great way of uh, like intaking CBD and getting a lot of great stuff in your body and a lot of microbes as well, so. That's really cool. I'm definitely going to try that. I'm all about edibles. That's like my number one way of ingesting cannabis is eating it rather than smoking. Um, so I will have to drink the, the runoff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a great way to go the about it. Hash leachate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At least try it, you know, try a little sip or anything and be like, Oh yeah, Tyler was right. That is tasty. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Um, I mean, it would probably be really cool to water your plants with it too, right? Yeah, yeah. Let it let it get back to room temperature and not be freezing, so you don't you know hurt your root zone or anything like that. Obviously, but um, I think it'd be a great way to get some natural microbes back in there. Um, I know a guy he top dresses his soil with all of his leftover cannabis after he makes hash. And you know, hey, what I don't care as long as you're getting it back into the system, you're abiding by the law of return. Mm -hmm. which something you've talked about many times in this podcast is obviously chopping and dropping and getting back to the soil, adding compost back into things in between your runs. It's you're abiding by the law of return, which is, which is, we don't want to just be taking, taking, taking from the soil. Yeah. And that's kind of where the direction of all of agriculture is right now is this whole resource extraction. What, how can I take as much as possible? And so that's what drew me to sustainable agriculture. Regenerative movement is literally regenerate. Let's give back. It's all part of a system. And if you just keep taking, taking, taking at some point, there's going to be nothing left to take. Exactly. All right. Um, who are, um, this is a question I always have to ask before we're obviously winding down, getting to the end here. Um, what are some other guests that you would like to see on this podcast or other people you think would be good for me to educate our customer base with and, and all the listeners? Um, well, I don't know if they want me to say their names, but <laughs> um, I personally would love to hear Stay Fly Farms on a podcast. They're outdoor growers but and breeders, um, but they're polyculture, regenerative. And I've never heard them on a podcast before. And I, I would love to hear what they have to say about everything. They're all about okay. ferments and um, 
biodiversity and their breeders. So they're breeding seeds specifically for their environment. Um, yeah, it would be really cool to hear from them. Also for the indoor aspect, um, I have a really good friend, Buck Mountain Cannabis. Um, he's yeah. smart, very smart guy. And I love talking shop with him. I think we could talk about weed for hours. So that would be somebody definitely, I don't know if he would go on the podcast but I would love to hear them. I'll have to ask him I follow follow them on social media and obviously they're huge skateboarders and it just brings it back to my you know the time that I grew up in in the Bay Area in the 90s and 2000s and you were either a skater or a rollerblader or somewhere in between there so um, yeah uh, I'll definitely reach out to him and uh, and see what's going on see yeah. if we can get them on there and talk about I'm that. actually going to go get my skateboard set up right after this. We're gonna go skating, me and my husband. I have like been a snowboarder my whole life and my husband's super into skating. And I'm like, okay, I'll do it. I'll try it. Let's go. Just yeah. gotta wear some knee pads. <laughs> yes, knee pads, elbow pads, definitely a helmet. We gotta keep that that smart brain you have nice and safe. Um, but yeah, that's great. So we've got a couple people and um, I've thought about Buck Mountain too. He's got some some really interesting stuff going on, um, and I love to love to focus on local growers whenever I can. Yeah, are you in California then? Yeah, I'm in Sacramento. Uh, my okay. parents have a farm in between um, El Dorado County and Calaveras County up in the mountains. That's where I'm at. Um, I have a house. I own a house in Sacramento this last year, um, and. Um, just trying to get more connected with, with local people, my local environment, but, um, just buying a house, I was able to get into a normal schedule and a routine and now going to the gym and cooking my own food and, <laughs> and, and having a, a, you know, a beautiful garden and stuff like that. So, uh, gotten to do a lot of great stuff in the last year or two. It's why I've backed off a little bit on the podcasting, but now it's, uh, now that I'm comfortable and relaxed and got the vibes in my garden every morning for 30 minutes, I've got plenty of time to to devote some new ideas for podcasting. Awesome. Well, congratulations on all that. Sounds beautiful. Yeah. Thank you very much. And I'm excited for people to learn about this. And I really love being like a launching pad for people to be like, gosh, I love listening to her talk. Let me go follow her Patreon or go, let me go get more involved with learning from her. Maybe, maybe they'll get inspired enough and they'll chase around the country and listen to you a couple of times <laughs> or find, you know, find, because we got uh, a lot of people all over the United States listening to this podcast. And it sounds like you're going to be in a lot of their different areas very soon. So um, I hope you guys chase her down and get some more information and allow her to to learn about your situation and actually let her help you out. You know, I think that's a, a big thing is we, we come into these situations and we ask broad generalized questions because you don't want to get too specific because you're worried about the, the can of worms it's going to open up, but you should really let somebody dump out that can of worms and straighten it out for you every once in a while. It's <laughs> kind of where I go with that. Um, so thank you so much for coming on. Um, and if you can go over, um, again, uh, before we close here, your social medias and the best ways to contact you. Yep. So that's queen of the sun grown on Instagram, YouTube, and Patreon. Beautiful. Okay. I'm glad you got one name. That's easy to remember on all different platforms. Yep. Very simple. Very easy. All right. Well, thank you so much. This was episode 19 of the grassroots living soil podcast. And we're going to go ahead and end it here. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you.